0: Genesis chapter 11 on the last Sunday in July we began a series of sermons walking through the life of Abraham and it all started in verse 30 of Genesis 11 now Sarah was barren she had no child a double statement of barrenness Not only was she barren, in case you don't know what that word means, she had no child, right? This is parallelism, this is intensification, it's repetition. History is played out. Genesis one to eleven are cosmic. It's about the history of the whole world, the whole earth, the whole cosmos. And this is this is where it gets. It's played out, it's done, it's barren, there is nowhere else to go, there's no foreseeable future, it's hopeless. God created this beautiful, life-giving world, but evil has darkened it, and neutered it, and sterilized it. And then we get to Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house To the land I will show you and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Bible is the story of how God is dealing with evil. And this is the hinge of the whole Bible. The great creator of the universe... Whose voice is so powerful and authoritative that he called stars and planets and worlds and microbes into existence. That same voice is once again called out. Five times in in Genesis chapters 3 through 11. Five times the creation is cursed because of evil. And five times in Genesis chapters 1, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, five times God blesses in calling Abraham. God is at work to reverse the curse of evil. God is at work to conquer evil, to judge it, and to absolutely undo it. God's work in and through Abraham renews the vision that God set out in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 when he was creating. Adam was given the garden of Eden in Genesis 2. Abraham is promised the land of Canaan in Genesis 12. God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply. Abraham is promised descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. God walked with Adam in Eden. God told Abraham, once again, walk with me. God's call to Abraham is the answer to the problem of evil. Through Abraham, God is going to conquer evil and get the human project back on track. Salvation is not only comprehensive, it's restorative. It's getting this thing back on track. And he does this. God, God addresses evil by making seven promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. I will make of you. I will bless you. I will magnify you. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. The healing of the world will happen through you. So into Abraham's homeless, barren, hopeless situation God offers extravagant promises he offers gifts beyond imagining and none of this can Abraham do by himself this is a gift from God and this gift of God like all gifts requires receiving here are promises that require a decision of faith Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land. I will show you seven mind-boggling promises all hanging on one demand. God calls this barren, hopeless couple to abandon and renounce and relinquish everything that's familiar and head to a place That God won't even tell the name of it. I will show it to you. The whole story of Abraham is premised on this seeming contradiction. To stay in safety is to remain barren. To leave in risk is to have hope. And then we read in Genesis 12 verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. He does it. He follows God with his eyes closed. How how does he do this? Out of trust. He trusted in God's promises. God still calls people today. God still speaks, his voice still goes out, he still gets us in the midst of our ordinary lives. And calls us in steps of faith. And we're going to have three couples in our church. Take a couple of minutes each. To tell some stories. About how God has done that to them. And then afterwards I'm going to come back up. And I'll talk some more. So our church exists for the glory of God. Uh, you really don't have to have all kinds of studies to say what's the purpose of a church or vision. It's really quite simple. It's about God and his glory and his fame. And existing for the glory of God always means existing for the good of a community. When Paul wrote letters to Christians in the New Testament, it was always into realities. Who they were in Christ and who they were in place. This is my father's world. To be for God's glory is always to be for the good of a community. So we pray every Sunday in this church that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth, which for us means in this community, in this valley. Our prayer is that this community, this valley, will reflect the reign of King Jesus. That our city, our valley, will go to new heights of flourishing and wholeness And the way God works in the world has always been by calling people into his agenda. That's how God works in the world. That's how God, at the great hinge of the Bible, is God calling out to Abraham and saying, I'm going to work through you. Not Abraham being a robot. Abraham still had to receive the gift of God's call and respond in faithful obedience. Now we we really don't know how Abraham heard God's call. Sometimes in the Bible it tells us how God speaks and calls people. And sometimes it just says he did. Which is generic for he did it in some way. But he didn't tell us which way. But we do know why God called Abraham. Like the psalm said. He called Abraham to bless him. So that he would be a blessing. So that by blessing Abraham... Abraham would then offer that blessing to others. Blessed to be a blessing. Now Joseph. God called Joseph through a dream. God still speaks through dreams. He does. God's not intimidated by invading you know if you believe he called the stars and planets into existence he can work in your dreams i've got janelle has quite a remarkable story of a very specific way that god spoke to her in a dream that um is just a remarkable thing a friend of mine he's from south africa he's a Pentecostal. he says aubrey you guys people like you when you need to hear from god you read the bible me i take a nap <laughs> <laughs> And he would. I would be talking to Nelson. He's like, man, I I need to know what God wants. I'll see you later. I'm going home. I'm going to take a a nap. It's just. (laughs) If you fast forward the story a little more, there's Moses. I'm convinced that the way God called Moses was through a burden. Moses was broken for his people, the Israelites who were slaves to the Egyptians. And he was so burdened, he rushed forward and killed an Egyptian. 40 years later, uh, there's a flaming bush and God speaks to him. But that's not his call. His call was the burden that he didn't quite know how to interpret 40 years prior. One of the primary ways that God calls people is through a deep burden. I heard some of that in Paula's language. Paula is burdened for people to know community. She's burdened for people to experience the life of the Spirit in the midst of a worshiping, caring, loving, nurturing community. And that burden was is a call on Paula's life. David, you know how God called David? Somebody else walked up to David and said, this is what God wants you to do. God still works that way. God still speaks to us through others. A whole big section of the Bible is called the wisdom literature. And what it says over and over and over is that God's voice is heard in wisdom. So here's my theory of listening for God's voice. Pursue wisdom, stay open to the prophetic. Get a yellow pad, write down pros and cons. What would be wise And normally that's where God is. But God can also do irrational things. Like say Abraham leave everything and go somewhere you don't know what to do. Or Joseph I know you're the runt. But you are going to rule over. You're going to be a leader. That call on Joseph was at 16 years old by the way. And it wasn't until he was 30 that it actually came true. David was anointed and called to his vocation and his job also when he was 16 also it wasn't 30 the call doesn't always equal the time Moses was called when he was 40 it wasn't until he was 80 that he got to, got to actually do it the passage we heard read from the book of Acts. How did the call of God occur there? The the church was worshiping, praying, and fasting. And God said, it doesn't tell us how God said, but some way the community knew that God was saying, and it could have been audible, it could have been dreams, it could have been burdens, it could have been any of these ways that we see in Bible. It doesn't always say the way. Here it doesn't. It just says the community was in a season of prayer and fasting. And God said, give me Barnabas and Saul. The two leaders of their community. And you as a community let them go. Can you imagine letting go of Paul? Who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Can you imagine the kind of faith it took for that community? To lay hands on him and to send him out? Wouldn't you have wanted to keep the one inspired to write two-thirds of the New Testament? Wouldn't you want him to be the one talking instead of me? Well, or CJ, you know. If you're familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, so funny. About two, uh, about a month ago, I was reading this really nerdy New Testament book, and um, I'm reading the footnotes because I just I like footnotes and things like that. These were endnotes, the worst. Where you have to turn to the back, you can't even see them at the bottom, and there's this reference that the guy writing the book, this brilliant New Testament scholar, had gotten a letter from somebody that was one of his students. And you know who the letter was from? Jeff Gwynn, the pastor of Christ the King. And you know what the letter was about? Jeff was asking Richard Hayes, this brilliant professor of New Testament at Yale, he was asking Richard Hayes, I'm I'm reading a story about Bonhoeffer, and Bonhoeffer was reading through the Gospels, and he came across this phrase where, I can't remember it exactly, it was some... Do you remember, Aaron? It was something about uh, come before winter. Paul was telling somebody to come to him before winter. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, at the time, World War II was ramping up. He was in New York, and he said, "God used that to tell me go back to Germany," and he did, and he died. But he, but Bonhoeffer knew that that was the voice of God. I wanna, I'm, I'm quickly becoming a fan of this French uh, philosopher by the name of Jean Louis Chrétien. And um, I was reading... He's, he's, he's a phenomenologist, which is a type of philosophy. And uh, I was reading this book this past week by him where he's talking about how God speaks through Scripture to us. And uh, he says, Can you imagine children playing with conches? You know, um, you know piggy, remember? Well, go, okay, The conch, not like that, though. <laughs> um, and they put their ears to it where they hear or they think they hear the sound of the ocean. He said, And we who have the... The words of Scripture which are conscious, where an everlasting voice doesn't speak to us, we imagine, but really, really does. God speaks to us. When we turn to Scripture, He speaks to us in all sorts of ways. Sometimes it's a feeling when your heart is tuned right. That's the key to the prayer and fasting thing is it's, it's turning the satellite dish of your heart toward God So that you can actually hear the God who is speaking. Listen again to these final words of Jesus to his followers in Matthew 28. I read them just a few minutes ago. Matthew 28 verse 16. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, in that very famous passage, there's only one command. There's only, in Greek, one imperative. Make disciples. That's the command. Everything else is participles that serve the main verb. When do we make disciples? As we go with the gospel. How do we make disciples? By baptizing and teaching. That's our method. But, and this is crucial for our understanding. Matthew, who recorded Jesus' final command, and the people who... Who were reading Matthew's record of of this event. They understood baptizing and teaching as things churches do. Only hyper individualistic Americans read the Great Commission and think it's talking to individuals. And so when we turn to the book of Acts, we have the historical record of how the earliest recipients of the Great Commission understood and lived out this command. And when you read the book, it's quite simple. They go from city to city, planting churches at planted churches. That's how they understood and obeyed Jesus' Great Commission. Christians would find their way to the largest city in a region and plant churches there. That would then plant churches in the region and then they move on to the next city. This is clearly the model we find throughout the New Testament. And not only throughout the New Testament, but history too shows us that strong, gospel-centered, healthy, life-giving, spirit-filled local churches are the womb in which new Christians are conceived and birthed and nourished and cared for and which community transformation occurs. Now, yes, there are exceptions. There's exceptions to all of life. But this is the pattern. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. A a Christian congregation. The church in a neighborhood. A parish church. Has always been the primary location for getting the way of Jesus. And the truth of Jesus. And the life of Jesus believed and embodied in a community. I know there's more to the church than a local congregation. But the local church is the place where all of this stuff gets localized and personalized. The local church is the place. It's the community where we listen to Christ's commands and obey Christ's commands. It was a local church that heard God saying, send Barnabas and Saul out. All of the church letters in the New Testament to churches, only a few are to individuals. They all use that very good southern pronoun, y'all. The local church is the place in the community where we invite people to consider and to respond to Jesus' invitation into life. The local church is the place in the community for worshiping God. It's a place in the community where we are baptized into a Trinitarian identity and then go on into maturity. The local church is the place where we are taught the scriptures and learn to discern. And communal discernment is the goal of our growth. To grow up, Paul says, into the kind of body that can communally discern. There are popular ways of doing church in America that are not friendly to the local and the personal. The American way with its penchant for catchy slogans and stirring visions denigrates the local. Don't you hate slogans? Don't you feel coerced? By slogans. The American way of doing church with its programmatic attempts at dealing with people is insulting. And it can get lots of su- success, but it's slippery ice. There's no friction. You're not dealing. You're not we- really walking down the Jesus way. The overly programmed approach to church replaces intimacy with efficiency and function. Our city needs local, parish, neighborhood, community, churches. Because every part of our community is different. Think about the difference between downtown and East Rockingham. The flaws and fears, the hopes and strengths... It's the job of a local parish church to discern the glory and the idols of its particular community and then to live out the gospel into that particular place. Who wants to be treated like a project? Who wants somebody from outside to fly in and try to help them? We need local help. We need on-the-ground, real, intimate data. A neighborhood church in downtown Harrisonburg that takes the virtues and idols of downtown Harrisonburg and downtown's idiosyncrasies and strengths. That is very different than a church somewhere on Port Republic Road. The needs of Barrington are not the same as the needs of Old Town. The needs of Highland Park or Lakewood are different than the needs of downtown, of Parkview. A church along the Port Republic Road corridor that takes seriously the strengths and the brokenness of suburbia. And not just any suburbia, but Harrisonburg suburbia. Which is quite different than Northern Virginia suburbia. A church along the Port Republic Road corridor that takes very seriously the strengths and the weaknesses of suburbia. Along with the energy And the brokenness of Devon Lane. That's very different. Than what's here. In Jesus' most famous parable. The parable of the Good Samaritan. He teaches us we actually love our neighbors. When we can walk by them. When we actually see their particular needs. Because of proximity. Small, local parish churches are the best way to apply the gospel because the gospel is not only about your sin and your soul, it is about your body and your place. Only Platonists, only dualists separate their souls from their place. But you're a whole person. And if the gospel is about all of life, then a church has to be about all of life. We will love our neighbors when we embrace the fact that the church in your neighborhood has always been the primary location for getting the way and the truth and the life of Jesus believed and embodied. The kingdom of God is primarily local and we must be locally focused. The Jesuit poet Gerard Manley Hopkins beautifully described our world as charged with the grandeur of God. He's got this other poem where he talks about, um, it's like, um, foil that's shaking the glory of God emanates out like shook foil. In another poem, he described Christ as the one who plays in 10,000 places. Christ. It's like, can you see It's a child. Have have you ever walked down the street with a child? They can't go anywhere without hopping and running and playing. And it's like walking our dog Buster. I mean, he just gets distracted by everything. And you look over and there's something that's enthralled him. Christ plays like a child in 10,000 places. And we get to find and join Christ at play in another place in Harrisonburg, in this community, in this valley. I'm not saying that our church is the only church. It's not. But our church is our church. Our job is to do God's work here as a group. And what the city needs is for all of its churches to do that. One last thing. We heard CJ read these three astonishing verses out of Genesis 22. And next week I'm going to preach through the whole chapter of Genesis 22. These are the great bookends of Abraham's life. Genesis 12 and Genesis 22. And once again Abraham responds in obedient. Obedience. Faithful obedience. When we read Genesis 22 it's easy to imagine an anguished Abraham. Staggering toward Moriah. When CJ read the line about he got up and he cut the wood. I thought I don't even know if I would have cut the wood you know. And that's how we often imagine it, as an anguished Abraham staggering toward Moriah as he leads his son to his own death. But to be honest, the passage, the Bible gives us no hint of anguish. No heated arguments with Sarah. Yahweh told you what? No teetering on the edge of faith. Abraham is every inch which Sir Kierkegaard calls the knight of faith. A champion of faith, because he expects the impossible. Abraham expected resurrection. That's why he did it. Because you see, Abraham already knows resurrection. At his birth, Isaac rose from the dead womb of Sarah. Time and time again, Abraham has seen resurrection faith is not blind leap it's walking in trust of God based on what we've known of God and you know what our church knows of God our church knows that just a couple of years ago there were a few of us sitting in a living room and now we have this building and we've renovated and we owe no man a penny for the, the $370,000 renovations of this building. We entered into a three-year capital campaign to pay it off and a year early we told everybody, stop giving, it's already been paid for. I've never been to a church that ended a capital campaign early and told people to keep their money. I've never in my life ever heard of a church that released people from their pledges because God was faster than they had anticipated. You know what we know as a church? We know that a lot of us came through a lot of pain and suffering to this moment. And in the midst of us is the spirit of God giving life. The pearl of great price, Jesus himself, the bread of life. With confidence, Abraham said to those who went with him, we'll worship and return to you. Because Abraham believed that God is able to raise men even from the dead. God is going to call people in this room to plant a church. It might come through a dream. It might come through a sense. It might come through the miracle of you and your spouse thinking the same thing at the same time, which, if I understood Leah right, I think that uh, that's what she described as the miracle. It might come through a burden. It might come through an audible voice. It might come through reading scripture and it just feels like a passage gets highlighted. Now, obviously, a lot of times what we think God has said is last night's pizza. None of us are inerrant. We have to test these things, but God is going to call some of us and it will be a death. Don't try to whitewash it. He's going to call some of you to leave this. This. He's going to call some of us to say goodbye to each other. And we can step out in obedient faith. Because we have a God. Who raises the dead to life. And we're going to do this. Because there are 15,000 college students. Living over the highway. And there are thousands and thousands of families living in those suburban neighborhoods. And the way that God has always got the gospel into a place is with a local church. And we're going to do this because if any man wants to save his life, he's got to lose it. And if we want to save incarnation and hold it to ourselves, we're going to lose it. We have to say to God, like Sarah on the front of the worship guide, let it be to me as you would have it. If you see this art on the front of the worship guide, it's remarkable. The reason I love it so much is most of the medieval paintings of the Annunciation. Sarah's quite holy and majestic and she's sitting at a desk and it's all calm. And this is terrible. The look on her face, Sarah, Mary, thanks Janelle. <laughs> Mary, the look on her face is terror. And fear and ecstasy, and worry and pain. And in the gold foil, you can see some hint of another creature from another place. Can we say this to God? I'm your servant, Lord. Let it be according to your word. Let's pray.